Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI members reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon Samzell, Chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A strike averted. The tide turns in the Ukraine war, possibly. And inflation, well, inflation, it just gets worse. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on just how much economic trouble we may be in. Headline inflation fluctuates substantially, but we've got a significant underlying inflation problem. And Dan Chung of Alger Management on staying safe by taking some risk. There are patterns that you can uh, invest in, even in turbulent times. Ukraine took another unexpected turn this week as Ukrainian forces pushed the Russians out of territory that they had held for months, raising hopes for people like former U.S. Army Europe Commanding General Ben Hodges. This will end, I believe, uh, early next year. The Ukrainians are going to push the Russians back to the 23 February line before the end of this year, I believe. While former Defense Secretary Leon Panetta warned of possible Russian retaliation. The real issue is whether Putin now strikes back. He already has struck back on the infrastructure, whether he resorts to uh, to more 
you know, including the possibility of battlefield nuclear. And President Xi of China took the occasion to make his first trip out of the country since the pandemic hit. And whom did he visit? Well, Russian President Putin in Uzbekistan. He essentially hitched his wagon to Vladimir Putin. It hasn't gone well. That has gone badly for, for Xi. Meanwhile, in the United States, we walked right up to a national rail strike that would do real damage to a fragile economy and then avoided it at the 11th hour through round-the-clock negotiations led by the Biden administration. We were able to reach agreement, and I think an agreement that really is beneficial to both sides. But the really big story for global wall street were those cpi numbers on tuesday coming in hotter than expected cementing in most minds a path of continued aggressive rate hikes by the fed and maybe just maybe for longer than we had thought the fed has a game plan their game plan is to make sure that the interest rate is higher than inflation that's the way they believe the way to kill inflation but president biden insists he is not worried the stock market doesn't necessarily reflect the state of the economy as you well know the economy's still strong Unemployment's low, jobs are up, manufacturing's good, so I think we're going to be fine. Are you worried about the inflation number, though, sir? No, I'm not. Well, if President Biden isn't worried about inflation, the markets sure were this week, reacting with a vengeance to that CPI news, with the S&P 500 having its worst week since June, down 4.8%, and the Nasdaq down almost 5.5%, while bond yields shot up, the 10-year Treasury adding 14 basis points, ending up at 3.45%, and an even bigger story with the two-year, up 31 basis points, pushing up to just under 3.9%. To help us understand what the markets are trying to tell us, this week. We welcome now Afsani Beshla, CEO of Rock Creek, and Greg Peters, co-CIO of PGM. So, Greg, let's start with you. What are the markets trying to tell us? Markets are trying to tell you, David, that uh, the Fed has a lot of work to do. Uh, inflation continues to be quite persist, uh, persistent. Uh, what I think uh, the inflation number showed us is that how broad-based it was. So the focus was on the core number, and the core number came in double what was expected, and the markets were leaning the other way. So I think this is just a, a reaffirmation that inflation is entrenched in the system. The Fed has a lot of work ahead of itself, uh, as do other central banks, and the markets need to adjust, yields need to adjust, uh, and the economy as a consequence of this higher rate environment uh, uh, needs to slow down. So, Sonny, it looked like the market started to adjust, certainly this week. At the same time, how much work does the Fed have in front of it? Because we keep hearing about there's a lag in monetary policy. At the same time, it looks like they're behind. You're absolutely right, uh and what is happening is now I think the market has accepted that we're going to be closer to four, four and a half, maybe more uh, in terms of terminal rates. And that was what shook the markets this week. And as Greg said, this is not just in the U.S. I think the ECB is behind the curve. Uh, the Bank of England is behind the curve. So this is um, more of the U.S. than more than just the U.S. phenomena. Um, but no question that the medicine will be tough over the next six months. And our expectation here is that we would probably end up at probably 4.25 by the end of the year. Well, the medicine's tough, Afsani, but is there any danger the doctor might prescribe too much of the medicine, overreact, because it takes a while for to kick in. 
You're so right also because policies take a while to work through the system. So we know in Economics 101 that uh, that policies, especially interest rate increases, can choke up the housing market. For example, they've started you know, with 6% uh, mortgage rates, you're going to see the housing market hugely impacted, but that takes not next month, but a couple of months to work through. So no question that we could overcorrect, but I think the Fed now feeling that they have fallen behind has that danger of overcorrecting. I think the good news there is that they can always bring in interest rates down a little bit um, in the early part of next year, but most likely they will be very careful before they do that because we have seen with uh, Volcker and others, if you bring down interest rates down too soon, you will also have problems. Thank you so much, Greg Peterson of Sunday Specialist. They're gonna be staying with us as we get some advice on what we should be doing with our portfolios given all of the turmoil. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. 
The outlook for oil is bleakest of the four. We now use nine and a half gallons each day. By 1985, the average household is expected to be using 15 gallons of oil. Yet even at the present lower rate of usage, the reserve on hand would be wiped out in 10 more years. That was Louis Ruckheiser, of course, on Wall Street back in 1973 when he was worried about running out of oil altogether in the globe after only 10 years. Little did we know that at the time we were only seven months away from an OPEC oil embargo, which really played havoc with the markets. As we were watching the hit movie Poseidon Adventure and listening to the most popular song, that was Roberta Flack's Killing Me Softly. Still with us are Greg Peters of PGM and Afsane Bechelis of Rock Creek. So, Afsane, you've had a good part of your career dealing with oil. We didn't run out of oil the way we thought we would. There are a lot of issues including geopolitical ones. But given what we just talked about, that possible paradigm shift from asset value over into wages, if you're maintaining a portfolio, if you're investing funds the way you do, Afsani, what does that tell you about what you do? Because it doesn't sound very good for investors if asset values are going down. David, even in this very difficult year uh, for the economy and for uh, renewables, renewables were up about 9%. Now, obviously, this year they fell far behind oil and gas, as we all know. But if you look on a three-year basis, I have some numbers here. Clean energy was up about 8.9% versus oil and gas, which was up 3.3%. If you look over five years, again, uh, renewables have been doing better. So the interesting thing also is that from you asked about wages, but uh, there's now more people working in clean energy than in fossil fuels as we speak. So the economy is shifting and those um, jobs are actually pretty well paid because there is a shortage of people who have the experience. So in terms of uh, investments, there are a number of areas, obviously, in climate, including food and ag. We're seeing that, you know, more people are looking for higher quality food. So there is a big potential for investing in that area. And it's not just in the short term because fertilizer prices are high because of the Ukraine war or or um, supply chain problems. It's a longer term issue. So energy, clean energy and food and ag obviously have the wing on their back, especially also because of the new inflation act that is also going to put sources in that area. But even if we had not had the Inflation Act, you would still have a lot of interest in those areas. The only other two things I was going to say on that front is also biotech and life sciences that also got killed over the last few years relative to the rest of the market are very interesting. We look at it very actively, but um, but again, those are areas where you see startups as well as established companies doing more and more. Last but not least, I would love to know what Greg also thinks if we could be going back to a 60-40 or a 70-30 where people were getting bonds out of their portfolios, but is this a good environment to start thinking bonds if our scenarios about the economy are right? Yeah, so Afsane, so it's, um, you know, I'm thinking the bond market's a modern day Poseidon adventure when I heard that, that quote. So I do think the good news in the bond market is that we're largely past the pain. So it's been a really difficult environment to say the least. If you think about just the 10 year treasury, we were at 50 basis points. Now we're at 340 basis points. So there's been a dramatic repricing. High yield yields are up from four and a half to nine and a half percent. So I think we're getting closer to the end. And just six, nine months ago, investors were asking about the benefit of bonds in the portfolio, 60-40 construct. I do think that game has changed. It's still a little early because some volatility is on the horizon here. 
but we're in a much better place today than where we were back in uh, 2021 and 2020. Uh, so I feel pretty constructive, even though I do believe that there's volatility ahead. And just think about how we move from a Fed pricing perspective, right? So this time last year, there was basically zero Fed hikes pricing to the market. And now we're pricing in you know, close to four and a half percent. So that's a dramatic move, a real repricing. And no wonder why not only bonds were hit, but equities have been hit in the process. So, Greg, let's pursue that 40 part percent of it uh, in the in the high yield, in the investment, uh, I'm sorry, fixed income part of it. Uh, we have people on here who say high yield, as you just said, that's a good idea. Investment grade, not so much. Is that where you are? Hey, you know, the, the high yield market is really different this time in this cycle uh, Asani talked about energy. So about 20% of the U.S. high yield market is the energy space. That's a very different market going into this cycle than what we've seen in previous kind of economic uh, downturns. It's a much higher quality segment uh, than we've seen historically. All the risk has been pushed off into the levered loan market. Investment grade corporate bonds also much longer duration, lower quality. So somewhat perversely and interestingly, the high yield bond market in the U.S. looks pretty attractive relatively. I just think it's a little early to get too excited as we enter or the possibility of entering into a recession as I have yet to see credit spreads stay stable and not widen uh, heading into a recession. So that's kind of where we're at. But it's definitely something to keep on the radar and does change the uh, dynamic of 60-40. Uh, another thing we hear from time to time is high yield might be the new form of equity. That that's the place you want to take your risk assets in high yield. As you look at your portfolio, does that make sense to you? We're actually looking at maybe a derivation of what you just said, which is a lot of startups got um, got very large funding over the last few years. And as you know, it was relatively easy for venture funds to raise money and for new companies to raise money. That has come to an end. And they don't go to the traditional high yield market, obviously, but as they can't get funding for you know the rest of their growth, they're looking at new sources in, within credit markets. And so we're looking at those markets specifically because we think that there might be a lot of uh, really good value. I think on the high yield market, the, it's always, it's as Greg said, there's the energy component and the non-energy component. Obviously the energy component has a lot of oil and gas in it. And so we have not been doing a lot in that area. Afsani, I'm curious about when you talk about renewables, when you talk about some of the biotech, a lot of those firms, including the startups you're talking about, it's really based on the earnings in the out years. Uh, they're not making so much money now, maybe not at all. They're going to make it in the later years. As interest rates go up, that discount rate really hurts you, doesn't it? So does that still make it a good investment? I think it's still, and it, we still are going to do really well from innovation in our economy. So out of those companies, while, while a lot of them will need 10, 12 years to grow, some of them will not need um, as long as that. So you hope that your investments start bearing fruit. Some will bear fruit a little sooner, some will bear fruit a little later. But as a whole, we still expect higher returns relative to the markets. Let's not forget the kind of returns that we saw in equity markets over the last 10 years are unlikely in the next 10 years. And uh, no question that uh, private investments in new startups will still do better in our, in our view. Many thanks to Sonny Beschloss of Rock Creek and Greg Peters of PGM. Coming up, whether it's recession or not, tougher times are coming. 
And with rates rising, the bloom may be off the rows of those innovative growth stocks like tech and cutting-edge healthcare. But Dan Chung of Alger Management thinks otherwise. We'll find out why. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. There isn't much certainty out there for investors these days. Inflation may have peaked. I think there's consensus that we've seen peak inflation, but the question is, okay, now what? Or it may not. The Nasdaq down close to 4%, the Russell 2000 down over 3%, Taylor. Inflation, not peaking. We're headed for a soft landing. My hope is that we will achieve a soft landing, but Americans know that it's essential to bring inflation down. Or we're not. There's a 75% chance of recession in the next two years. But the one thing we can all be certain of is that interest rates are going up. If there's any doubt at all about 75, uh, they're definitely going 75. And nothing in those CPI numbers this week will make those hikes any less likely, leaving an investor to think hard about what position makes the most sense in a turbulent time. And we turn now to someone who is responsible for investing a lot of money, over $30 billion in a turbulent time. He's Dan Chung, CEO and CIO of Alger Management. Dan, thanks so much for being on Wall Street Week. First of all, let's get your sense of how turbulent the time is. Are we headed to a recession or not? Uh, we do think we're headed towards recession at this point, yes. And how bad, how long? Well, you know, recessions are, of course, very feared events. Um, one of the interesting things about the stock market is it's been a great predictor of recessions, and typically stocks peak eight to 10 months ahead of a recession. Uh, stocks peaked at the end of December, early January this year. So although NIBOR hasn't officially declared a recession, the stock market is saying we're probably in recession now uh, uh, as we speak. So, Dan, one of the things that we've seen a lot of uh, in, in the moving of funds, as well as people talking about it, is as we go into these turbulent times, people are saying that's the time you want to go into value. You don't want to be in growth. And in fact, if you look at some of the big funds, they've lost a fair amount. The, the growth funds have lost a fair amount. What does history tell us about when you go into a recession, where you want to be? Yeah, so that's a really important point. I mean, history, there are patterns that you can uh, invest in, even in turbulent times, even through recessions. Uh, very important to understand that um, because essentially it's about having a, a game plan, um, you know, during a economic volatility and recession. And what the uh, what the history tells us actually is uh, that uh, as we enter into recession, growth stocks, uh, in other words, companies with strong business models, uh, low debt, operating margins that are higher than average, they tend to do better uh, than say uh, highly leveraged companies, companies with lots of operating leverage, in other words, a, a fixed cost structure, and of course companies that weren't growing particularly well before, you know, that only tend to grow with with economic uh, growth. And so what we we have seen in the past historically is that um, as we enter into recessions, uh, value companies, value stocks, uh, tend to have a significant earnings uh, uh, compression, lost, you know, declines in earnings. Well, growth stocks actually tend to hold up fairly well. Um, now, the other part of history that's important to note is uh, the first stage of a market correction is really valuation compression. 
And we've seen that across the board. And it is also classically true that growth stocks compress more than uh, value stocks. Um, but I think we were actually uh, see a lot of signs that that, that part of this uh, market cycle is already over. The next part is really about the economic recession and the decline in earnings that it will bring um, you know, uh, across the market. And that's where actually growth stocks start to shine. So, so Dan, I think it's important, and what you said there, it's not all the companies that are considered growth companies. Uh, you have a subset that you really focus on. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Um, you know, Alger's philosophy uh, is focused on fundamentally the disruptors and the innovators across uh, industries, as well as a category we call life cycle change, which are sort of companies that may have uh, experienced tough times that we think are about to experience better times because of innovation or management and leadership. Um, we have some uh, interesting history from uh, top growers. Uh, in particular, if you look at the, uh, the top 75 companies uh, across the largest 750, so the top 10% of growers, um, their valuation actually has compressed so much that are relative to the market now, they're actually at multi-decade lows. And that again, that gives us some confirmation that it's really probably time to start thinking about uh, not so much uh, the start of the recession, which as I said, probably has started already, uh, but what it looks like coming out of recession and into recession. And that's where, again, these kind of growth stock leaders, the valuations have compressed, the fundamentals are likely to hold up better than than average and certainly better than value cyclicals. And we think it's you know a good time for long-term investors to think about the opportunities there. So that's Dan Chung with some really useful advice in these turbulent times for investors. Dan Chung is the CEO and CIO of Alger Management. Coming up, we'll wrap up the week once again with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. 
They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and we welcome back now our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, I think maybe the biggest news for the market, certainly, to this week were the CPI numbers that really disappointed to the upside here, particularly on the core. What did you make of those numbers? Look, for me, they were unwelcome, but not wholly unexpected. I think the right reading of the data all along has been that headline inflation fluctuates substantially, but we've got a significant underlying inflation problem. And that's what that core inflation rate, where the month was faster than the quarter, the quarter was faster than the half year, the half year was faster than the year, and the year was faster than last year, that's what it showed. And the month was at a close to uh, 7% core rate. We've got a substantial underlying inflation problem. Another way to see that was that median inflation is higher than it's been any time since we started collecting the data. Another way to see that is uh, that we're seeing substantial inflation in the housing components of uh, the index, which we know have very substantial persistence. Yet another way to see that is in the data from the Atlanta Fed, which I think is probably the best wage indicator on those who are switching jobs, which show where the market really is, unlike those who are staying on jobs, which was running at 8% or more. So we've got a substantial underlying inflation problem that doesn't uh, come out without very substantial monetary policy adjustment. And the market is waking up to uh, that fact and is now building in substantially more monetary policy adjustment uh, than it was with the terminal Fed funds rate uh, up now at 4.5. If you think back, David, it's been an extraordinary uh, journey. It was only 15 months ago that the Fed was saying that the rate was going to be zero in uh, mid-2023, and now it's saying that that rate is going to approach four and a half. And so the idea that that would change uh, financial conditions uh, can hardly be a very surprising one. So Larry, let's pick up on exactly that point. Uh, As far as you see it right now, what would you project the so-called terminal rate to be? We've got the head of economics at Bloomberg saying 5%. Deutsche Bank says 5%. Where do you think we end up? That wouldn't surprise me. Certainly at 450, there's more realism in market pricing than there was uh, several months ago. I, I think we're more likely to end up above 4.5 than we are to end up uh, below 4.5. And, and it certainly wouldn't surprise me if that rate has to get above five, if we are really going to, in a determined way, 
uh, contain and control inflation. Whether the Fed is going to stay the course and do what's necessary to contain inflation, you know, we're going to have to see how that plays uh, down uh, down the road. Uh, Rick Mishkin, a former Fed governor, had a very strong op-ed this week uh, making a point that I've made a number of times that even Paul Volcker had a kind of false start on inflation containment where he brought down uh, rates in response to uh, economic, uh, bad economic statistics in the spring of 1980, which then had to be reversed and forced us to have even higher rates than we otherwise would have had to have in uh, the early 1980s. So I think it's not going to be easy uh, to do what's necessary. History records many, many instances when policy adjustments to inflation were excessively delayed. And there were very substantial costs to that again and again through the 1960s and 70s, for example. I am aware of no major example in which the central bank reacted with excessive speed to inflation and a large cost uh, was paid. And so I think that lesson, that in terms of minimizing the risk of a stagflationary catastrophe, the Fed has to be prepared to stay the course, is the important one to internalize. Larry, as you know so well, have said repeatedly on this program, one of the major components of inflation are wages. Uh, We walked right up to the brink of a national rail strike this week in the United States. We've avoided it at least tentatively with a tentative agreement. Obviously, that would not have been good for the economy if there had been a strike at the same time. What does this say about the hydraulic pressure from organized labor and otherwise on wages? David, I I think uh, we have failed on labor rights in this country over the last uh, generation. It has been far too easy to fire union organizers. We have not done enough labor law reform to support uh, the right to organize, which I think is something fundamental to having an effectively uh, functioning labor market and something that is essential to having a fair and just uh, society. But I do think at a moment like this, when inflation is a crucial issue, the federal government needs to be very careful to keep a focus on all that it buys um, and all that it sets a pattern for to pay attention to holding costs down rather than rewarding workers. And I think there are a variety of uh, provisions that try to maximize the wages of those who are involved in activity the government is supporting. And so I worry about provisions that seek to enshrine high wages, for example, in those who are producing goods related uh, to uh, the environment. And I think the federal government has to walk a very careful balance here between restoring appropriate uh, labor uh, rights, which has been a real flaw and huge problem for the last 30 years, and 
doing things that will entrench uh, inflation uh, through wage pressure to the detriment of the overall economy, including uh, the economy of workers who work with their hands. And finally, Larry, let's turn to geopolitics for a minute. Obviously, uh, Ukraine had a rather good week, I'd say, with the advances it made in the Northeast with Russian troops retreating or even an absolute right route. On the other hand, President Putin had sort of a rough week as he met with President Xi, and President Xi has some concerns about that war. What do you make of what's going on there? I was heartened by the Ukrainian uh, success, but I think that from an economic uh, point of view, we're going to have to be very thoughtful about how we support Ukraine as hyperinflation becomes a greater risk in Ukraine. And I think more broadly, there's enormous uncertainty in markets for natural gas, in oil markets, through those markets, in markets for diesel fuel and uh, for uh, fertilizer. and. A great deal, we don't always say this, but a great deal in the U.S. inflation process is going to hinge on whether as markets tend to be pricing, oil prices stay moderate or even come down, or whether as geopolitical experts warn, we hit adverse developments and uh, those prices spike up uh, again. I don't have the wisdom to know which will happen, but I do think it's going to be an enormous factor uh, for the inflation process in the months ahead. Okay, Larry, thank you once again this week. Our very special contributor to Wall Street Week, he's Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. Taking our lead from China again. Much has been made, at least by a certain former president of the United States, of the fact that the COVID-19 virus comes from there. But now it looks like it may be its work habits that are contagious. Just over a year ago, we first talked here on Wall Street Week about the Chinese phenomenon of lying flat. Begun five years ago by a 25-year-old factory worker named Luo Huazhong, lying flat is spreading through the youth of China, tired of the long hours. They've decided to take it easy, giving up their jobs, living modest lives off of their savings, and yeah, sometimes off of their parents. And as we all recovered from the pandemic, employers were concerned that some Americans might be lying flat by simply not coming back into the workforce. A problem Sarah Ketter of Causeway Capital described for us. The cry we hear from companies, and we interview hundreds of companies, is that they don't have the labor they need. There seems to be this chronic labor shortage, which is something we haven't seen. Normally we talk about slack, and, and that doesn't appear to be the case. And it's not like the labor isn't there somewhere. It doesn't seem to want to work in many of these jobs. But now the problem has morphed into its own American version, what some people call quiet quitting, where employees show up, but make sure that they do just what they are required and no more. It's far from clear how widespread this quiet quitting is, or even whether it's entirely new. After all, let's be honest, there have always been some co-workers who have been happy to coast a bit. But it does raise questions for those of us who've been in the workforce for a while, whether the old norms still apply. But whether it's big or it's small, whether it's new or it's old, this quiet quitting business does pose some challenges for those hard-charging managers that some of us have had to deal with over the years. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.
You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.